This morning I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 as today we continue in our summer sermon series entitled Rebuilt. I want to read in your hearing Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 16 and once you find your place in sacred scripture please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 6, I'll begin at verse 1. When word came to Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Samballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Samballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will be too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadia, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Today I want to preach a sermon that's entitled Ministry in 3D. Ministry in 3D. When Sam Ballard and Geshem heard that the wall was nearly completed, 
they sent an invitation asking for Nehemiah to join them in one of the villages named Ono. Ono was strategically located halfway between Samaria to the north and Jerusalem to the south. I can well imagine how Sam Ballot's press secretary spun the story. She probably said to the press corps, We have extended an olive branch of peace to Nehemiah. We have called for a summit in the valley of Ono. You realize that Ono is halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem, which signifies that we are willing to meet in the middle. We are willing to negotiate. We are willing to come halfway so that we can enforce all uh, efforts of diplomacy to avert any possible uh, uh, chaos and bring peace in the midst of this conflict. Now, we don't know exactly how Nehemiah is going to respond, but when we get word back from Nehemiah, we will uh, circle back to you and let you know how it's going. Now, when Nehemiah heard that there was going to be a summit meeting in the Valley of Ono, his response was classic. He simply said, oh no, I'm not going to the Valley of Ono. He gives a few reasons. He says, I knew that they were plotting against me. Elsewhere, he had already said that the Samaritans have no claim to the city of Jerusalem. In our passage, he simply says, why would I get distracted? For I have a great work that I'm doing here in Jerusalem. Why would I leave that work and come meet with you in the Valley of Ono? Friend, I want you to know, there are some places you just don't have to go. There's some conversations you just simply don't need to entertain. Here in our story, Nehemiah refused to go to the Valley of Ono and he refused to talk to his enemies. And I think that the reason he did that was because he knew the value of ministry in 3D. It was the ministry in 3D that helped focus him. It was ministry in 3D that helped galvanize him so that he refused to be distracted and get off point. The three D's are simply this, dedication, determination, and devotion. Nehemiah understood the value of, three, of these three D's. Friends, let me tell you, there are times in our culture when your enemy will entice you to go to the valley of oh no, to compromise, to negotiate, to talk further about who God is and what he wants done. And my advice to you is to have the wisdom of Nehemiah. There are some places you don't need to go. Don't go to the Valley of Ono. There are some conversations you don't need to entertain. So don't entertain your adversary, your enemy, when he calls you, when he tries to get you off point and distracted and to come to meet in the Valley of Ono. For Nehemiah, he said, I am dedicated. I am dedicated to this work. His dedication was not because of his cockiness. It was because of his conviction. A conviction is not something you hold. It's something that holds you. 
When you are a person of deep conviction, you are bound by something, and that, and that which binds you helps you to make wise decisions. So you ought to be a person of deep conviction. You're not being cocky when you tell the adversary, I'm not going there. You're not being cocky and arrogant when you tell your enemy, I'm not having this conversation with you. You're just simply being a person of deep conviction. Conviction is not something you hold. It's something that holds you. On four occasions, Sam Ballad and Geshem sent word enticing, inviting Nehemiah to come and meet him. And Nehemiah said the same thing. Oh, no, I'm not going. On the fifth occasion, Sam Ballad crafts a letter. He places it in an unsealed envelope. He gives it to the mail carrier and says, deliver this personally to the man named Nehemiah. Now, why in the world would Sanballat send an unsealed letter to Nehemiah? In those days, letters were sealed for two primary reasons. One is to prove authenticity, for it was sealed with the wax, and the person usually put a signet ring on it to tell you who it really came from, and it was sealed uh, for privacy. But this letter was unsealed. Why would Sanballat send that? The best answer I can give is that Sam Ballant wanted the mailman to get curious. And he wanted him to simply read the contents of the letter and then not only read the contents, but then scatter the contents and share the contents with his friends and family members and his own neighbors. What was the content of the letter, you ask? It simply said this, Dear Nehemiah, it has been reported among all the nations. In other words everybody's talking. It's been reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true. Well, for crying out loud, if Geshem says it's true, then it must be true, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that it's accurate. doesn't mean that it's factual. But Geshem says that it's true. And Geshem can verify that it is reported that you are planning a revolt against the king Artaxerxes of Persia. And that's the reason why you are rebuilding the wall, refortifying the city. In fact, in these reports, it is even further stated that you are going to appoint yourself as king, that you've already hired the services of various prophets to give the proclamation that now there is a king in Judah and his name is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, I'm just telling you this as a friend. I just tell you this as, a, as one of your closest confidants, that word like that will get back to King Artaxerxes. And when it gets back to him, it's going to be trouble to pay. So let's go to the Valley of Ono. I know you've rejected me four times, but now the fifth time I'm just pleading with you and I'm begging you as a friend, please come and let's meet in the Valley of Ono and let us confer together. Let us reason together. Let us talk this out a little bit further because I want to be on the same page as you. Sincerely, your best friend in the world, Sanballat. In essence, that's what the letter said. And the response of Nehemiah is even better. Nehemiah said, um, everything you're saying is not happening. What you're writing, you've made up because you are out of your flipping mind. You are crazy. You're just making stuff up. If ridicule won't stop the person of God, 
than rumors just might. The adversary realizes that if he cannot distract you with ridicule, if he can't distract you with name-calling, if he can't just distract you from the work that God has given you to do just by ridiculing you, and if you show some backbone and some grit and you dig in and you keep on doing what God has called you to do, then that ridicule will morph into rumors. This letter is a rumor-ridden letter of fake news. There is nothing in this letter that's true. All of it is false. All of it is made up, and it's all made up in the effort to intimidate Nehemiah and to stop the work of God among his people. They were hoping that this would weaken the work of their hands. And Nehemiah prays that their hands will be strengthened. In essence, what's in this letter is nothing more than what my grandmother would call good old gossip. You know, gossip has harmed more people than maybe any other tool of the adversary. The devil has used gossip over the years in the church to destroy people's reputation. You do know what gossip is, don't you? It's something that you hear that you have to pass on before you can verify as true. You've got to pass it on. Because it's so good. It's so juicy. I mean, this, this, this may be true. It may not be true. But I've got to tell you what I heard. That, my friends, is gossip. I've heard that if gossip and truth were going to run a race, that gossip could go from the starting line to the finish line faster than truth could even lace up his shoes. Because people love gossip. You know what people like to gossip about more than anything else? other people. So if you tell people something about other people, then that will fly faster than many times the truth. Gossip can circle the earth before truth even laces up its tennis shoes because people love gossip. I find it interesting that Nehemiah would not be distracted. He would not go to the summit meeting in the Valley of Ono. He saw it for what it was. He was dedicated to the work of God. And this dedication was not based out of cockiness. It was based out of conviction. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, you take care of your character and trust God with your reputation. You take care of your character and trust God with your reputation. In other words, you can't worry about what everybody else might be saying about you. You can't put out that many fires. You can't worry about what he said or she said. The only thing you can control is your character. Character has well been described as what you do when nobody's watching. It's who you truly are. So Warren Wiersbe advises us and encourages us, be a man of deep character, be a woman of absolute character, be a person of purity, be an individual who is, 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 is going after the holiness of God. You focus on your character, and when the Spirit of God reveals a character issue in you, then with the Spirit's power, you and God, you work that out, and you continue to be molded and shaped into the image of your Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, you focus on your character. You focus on being a person of honesty and nobility and purity. You focus on being a man or a woman of morality. You focus on being a person that God is pleased with. You focus on your character. 
And you trust God with your reputation. Because I tell you this much. If you have a solid character, and when somebody slings a rumor against you, the person who hears it will go, no, wait a minute, I know him. I know her. That doesn't sound like them at all. I don't believe it. But if you have a shady character, when somebody flings a rumor against you, the person who hears it will say, oh, yeah, I'm certain she said that. I believe he did that because that person is a scallywag. That individual has no character whatsoever. Friend, you focus on your character. Let God take care of your reputation. So you be a person of deep conviction. That conviction is born out of your character before the Lord. Nehemiah would not be distracted. He was focused on his work, and you need to be focused on the God-sized work that he's given you to do. And one of the ways you refuse from being distracted is you are dedicated to the work of God. And that dedication is not grounded in cockiness, but in conviction. Secondly, Nehemiah was determined. He was determined to do the will of God. And this determination was not rooted in stubbornness, but rather it was rooted in the Scripture. Beginning in verse 10, we are told that a priest named Shemaiah sent word to Nehemiah, said, uh, come and meet with me in my house. When Nehemiah got there, this man was under a self-quarantine. I mean, he had pretty much locked himself in his house. And he said in a, in a fit of frenzy, quickly, let us go to the temple. Let us go to the inside of the house of God. Let us hide there because people are coming to kill you. Under the cover of night, they will kill you. So quick, Nehemiah, let's go. Let's go to God's house. Let's go to God's temple. Let's go in a specific area. And there in the innermost part of the temple, we can hide for your own security and your own safety. Ma, at first, that... Sounds like a caring pastor, doesn't it? I mean, the preacher's telling you, go to church. That's a pretty good idea, don't you think? I mean, most of us would say on most days, every day, it's a good idea to go to church. Go to church and find security and safety. Go to church and pray. Go to the house of God. But almost immediately, there was something that stirred Nehemiah's spirit. There was a check in his spirit. And he thought to himself, why should a man like me run and hide? Why should a man like me hide in the temple where you're talking about? I will not do it. You sit there and you think to yourself, Nehemiah, why? Why aren't you going to do this? It sounds like a pretty decent idea. I mean, if... People are coming to kill you. You probably need to hide. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Are you just being stubborn? And he would say, no, I'm not being stubborn. This is not, this is not rooted in my personal stubbornness. This is rooted in my understanding of the Scripture. In verse 13, he simply says, uh, I realized that that priest was on the payroll of Sanballat and Tobiah. They had been hired. He had been hired by them to intimidate me. For what he was asking me to do, I would have sinned if I had done this thing. And they would have discredited my name among others. Now it's at this moment that you want to pull Nehemiah aside and you want to say, what sin 
would you have committed by going to church? What sin would you have committed by going to hide in the temple? And I think Nehemiah would have responded with Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, it says that this part of the temple, this house of God, this inner sanctum, it is reserved for the priest and the sons of the priest. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, it says, if anyone else goes into that area, he must be put to death. In our passage, Nehemiah says not once but twice, a man like me? That gives you a hint of why he's saying, I will not do it. A man like me? I'm not a priest. I'm not a son of a priest. A man like me? If, if, if I did what you are telling me to do, a man like me, if I went in there, I'd be violating the very word of God and I would be worthy of death. Only way he knows that is because he's rooted in the scripture. Only way he knows that is because he did his quiet time. Only way he knows that is because he read the Bible. Only way he knows that is because he had personal worship. Only way he knows that is because he had read Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. He was determined to do the will of God. And that determination was not rooted in personal stubbornness, but in passionate understanding of the scripture. You know, in this story, what the priest is enticing Nehemiah to do has an aroma of godliness, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like a good idea. Go to church, hide, pray. Let's go into the safest place. And there you will be secure from those men who want to come and kill you. It sounds like a pretty good idea. It has an aroma of God. But it's not biblical. There are a lot of things in our culture that have an aroma of God that are not biblical. And the only way you know the distinction is by being rooted in the scripture. You gotta know the Bible. You gotta stand flat-footed upon it. You gotta eat this scroll. You gotta devour God's word. You've gotta digest it. And then you've got to allow it to influence your hands and your habits. You've got to allow it to influence how you respond, even how you think, what you say, and definitely what you do and where you go. And the Bible helps make sense out of this world. So you're rooted in the scripture. There's a lot of things in our culture that smell kind of like God, but aren't biblical. Let me just give you one example. I mean, one of the great things that we're being bombarded with in our culture is the onslaught agenda of the LGBTQ community. And the argumentation is, many times even from a very confused church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that, well, who are we to say what is right and wrong? Who are we to say who somebody can love or not love? Why are we supposed to be individuals that would tell somebody who they can marry or they can't marry? I mean, God is love, and if they're in a monogamous, loving relationship, who are we to say that that is wrong? And the answer is because we stand upon the word of God, and God's word has consistently called that activity detestable. Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. Do not allow a man to lie with a man as a man lies with a woman, for that is detestable. 
In the New Testament, God's morality did not evolve. It did not change. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that it is, it is because of these kind of activities that God gave them over to sinful lust. God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over so that men exchanged natural religion, uh, natural relations with unnatural ones, and women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And the natural relationship is hearkening back to the related order of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where God made them male and female. That's the natural order. And to the person inside the church or outside the church who gives the argumentation, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. I would beg to differ because every time Jesus talks about marital morality, he always roots his conversation and his discussion in his understanding of the Mosaic Covenant. And so in a place like Matthew chapter 5, when he speaks about marriage, he says what Moses said. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let nothing or no one put asunder. So every time Jesus spoke about marriage, every time Jesus spoke about morality, he always hearkened back to what is stated in the Old Testament and later confirmed in the New Testament. Friends, you and I have to be biblical about every issue and especially this issue. For I've been told what you've been told, that there are those in the LGBT community who are coming for our sons and daughters and our grandchildren. They're coming for our children and our grandchildren. That should not scare you. But you, as the primary discipler of your children and your grandchildren, and as a congregation, those that God places into our care, we've got to do our very best to communicate what the book says. Listen, we are not stubborn people. Our, our determination is not rooted in personal stubbornness. However, I will admit that I can be a pretty stubborn individual. Please don't amen that at all. But I can be a very stubborn individual. But, this, but, but these issues are not rooted in personal stubbornness, but we are standing flat-footed on the Holy Scripture of God. If you're not careful, you can be distracted with something that smells as if it has the aroma of godliness. But it's not biblical. That's what happens in Nehemiah chapter 6. The reason he says no to what might appear to be a pretty good thing of going to the temple and hiding there is because that would be disobedience to the word of God. And Nehemiah says, I am determined. I am determined to live my days in obedience to God and his word. I am property of the Lord. So not only was Nehemiah dedicated and determined, he was also devoted. He was devoted to the Lord in prayer. His primary devotion was not to the completion of a project, the building of the wall. His primary attention and his focus and his primary devotion was to prayer to a living God. So in our passage, he just breaks out in prayer. Oh, my God, please remember Samballot and Tobiah. And also remember that prophetess who's trying to do me harm and all the others who are trying to intimidate me. Just, Lord, remember them. You read the uh, narrative of Nehemiah, and, and he's, he's telling his story. And then in the middle of telling his story, he breaks out in prayer. Friends, isn't that how you live your life? 
You live your life going about your business, doing what you're supposed to do. You live your life narrating your story. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Something's done. Something is said. And it prompts you just to lift up a flare prayer unto the Lord. You just, you just fire off a prayer unto God. That's what Nehemiah's doing. As he's living life, he's praying to the God of his life. This is the sixth time in six chapters that we hear Nehemiah praying. That might be a motif. That, that might be a theme throughout the book. This is the sixth chapter, and yet he's prayed at least six times. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Here in chapter 6, verse 14. On at least six occasions, he breaks out in prayer. And I want you to hear what he prays. Lord, please remember Samballot and Tobiah, my sworn enemies. They are tools in the hand of the adversary. They are trying to distract me. They're trying to deter the work that you have called us to do. They're trying to weaken our hands, but Lord, we need you to strengthen our hands. And Lord, we need you to take care of our enemies. So please fight for us. Will you remember, will you deal decisively with Tobiah, Samballot, Geshem, all the other enemies? I want you to note um, that Nehemiah talked about his enemies behind their back. But I also want you to note to whom he talked about his enemies behind their back. It is very biblical for you to talk about people. It is very biblical for you to talk about people so long as you talk about them to God. You're invited to talk about people behind their backs. The problematic people in your life, talk about them. You have permission. Talk about them to God. Don't post it on Facebook. Post it to the face of God. Don't put it on Instagram. Just put it to the one who is the God of grace and truth. You tell God all of your cares. You tell God all of your worries. You tell God all of your anger. You tell God all of your discomfort. You tell God all about the problematic people in your life. You have permission to talk about people behind their back. So long as you talk about them to God. And that's what Nehemiah does. It is not helpful, it is not advantageous for you to talk about other people to other people. But talk about other people to God. It would seem as if the Lord invites us to do that. And Nehemiah was devoted to the Lord, devoted to prayer. And so all throughout his memoirs, he will just explode in prayer. He'll just stop what he's doing and he'll offer up a prayer unto the Lord. It's a pretty good way to live life. When you get down to verse 15, we are told that they finished this task of rebuilding the wall in 52 days. 52 days. That's, that's less than your summer break, and your summer break is pretty short. 52 days. That's not how long somebody took to build a fence in your backyard. This is 52 days to build a wall around the stinking sacred city of Jerusalem. We're talking about a massive task that only took less than two months, 52 days. This captured the attention of the watching world. You know what they said? They did not praise Nehemiah. They praised Nehemiah's God. 
The only way they could do that, the watching world said, is because they had the help of their God. When you do God's work in God's way, God gets the credit. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's about God. It's about doing God's work in God's way so that God gets the credit, so that even the pagan, lost, watching world says God did that. The only way to explain it is that God did that. This is not the only time in sacred scripture when the watching world sees some activity and says God did that. The Israelites, as they left Egypt, they faced the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his army behind them. The Lord parted the waters so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. The Egyptians said, God did that. David went to the battlefield. He saw the nine-foot giant named Goliath from Gath. Uh, Goliath scared all the people of Israel, all the mighty soldiers, even King Saul himself. But David said, I'll slay him. He's just a leftover giant. I mean, God's got my back. It's according to the very word of God. I mean, I, I come against him in the name of God Almighty. And David took five smooth stones, put them in his pouch, grabbed a sling in his hand. He ran towards that giant. He notched one of the stones in his sling and he let it fly. It landed on the forehead of the giant. He came down with a thunderous thud. David ran over, took the sword out of the sheath of the giant and lopped off the giant's head, held up Goliath's head and, and yelled and screamed, causing all the Philistines to run over the mountainside. And what they were saying is that God did that. Elijah was on Mount Carmel. It was a showdown at sundown. He was going up against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now most days... Uh, one against 850 is not very good odds, but if it's you plus God, you always outnumber the enemy. So Elijah stood up and said, let's stop wavering between opinions. Let's choose the real God. Let the real God answer with fire. Let's build two altars. I'll build one to Yahweh. You build one to Baal. We'll call on our, our, our gods to respond. And whoever responds in fire, that's the true God. I'll even let you go first. They built a massive altar. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful construction. They built that massive altar and they cried out to Baal. And Baal never answered. About noontime, Elijah started sanctimonious smack talk. He said, maybe you need to laugh, uh, yell a little bit louder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's deaf. Maybe he's gone fishing. The implication is maybe he is, uh, he's uh, in the bathroom and he's in deep thought. Maybe he can't hear you, so you need to yell a bit, little bit louder. Oh, they prayed. They danced. They cut themselves, hoping that their blood would capture the attention of their deity. But their God could not respond because their God is no God at all. And later, it is Elijah who steps up and he prays to God and he says, God, please answer. And he's, in the moment he says, amen, fire falls from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It burns up the altar, laps up the water that was surrounding it. And, and it was proven that it is the Lord, Yahweh himself, who's the one true God. And the watching world said on Mount Carmel, God did that. One day Jesus was at the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus. He said, remove the stone. Martha said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. The body's been in there for four days. It's beginning to stank. The body's beginning to decompose. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass us any longer, Jesus. 
And Jesus said, did I not tell you that I'm resurrection and life? So resurrection and life said, remove the stone. Resurrection and life peered into death and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. And Jesus said, unbind his hands and his feet. Let this man live. He was once dead. Now he's alive. And the crowd went crazy. And they said, God did that. One early Sunday morning, some women went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. He had been in the tomb for three days now. They didn't know who was going to roll away the stone. But they wanted to come and properly prepare the body for burial. When they got to the entrance of the garden, they looked and saw that the stone had been rolled away. And seated atop it was an angel dressed in white. The angel engaged them in conversation. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell the others. Friends, for 2,000 years, we have been believing the testimony of those ladies. We've been telling the story that Jesus is alive. That though he was dead, though he was slain on a cross for your sins and mine, though he was placed in a borrowed tomb, on the third day he was raised from the dead. And the watching world has looked at us for 2,000 years and they have said only God can do that there's somebody here who has a testimony somebody who's here today and the only reason you're here today is because God did that the doctor said you only got six months to live but that was six years ago God did that your marriage should should be broken what you did to her she should have left you but she stuck around with you she stayed with you and now your marriage is stronger than ever before God did that your prodigal should still be in the far country but because of God's power and because of your prayers and because of you staying home fattening the calf your prodigal has come over the horizon and the watching world says God did that. You should still be unemployed. You should not have a job but the job you now have is better than the job you used to have and the only explanation is that God did that. The cancer should have eaten up your body but God has been gracious and he has healed your body and the only answer even the physicians can tell you is that God did that. COVID should have done a number on the church. COVID should have shut the doors but the doors of the church are not shut. Even today the doors of the church are wide open and God did that. I wonder if there's anybody in the house who has a testimony that can simply say God did that. When you do God's work in God's way, God gets the credit. So that even a watching world says God did that. The enemy will try to distract you, friend. The enemy will entice you. Come to the valley of oh no. Let's compromise. Let's negotiate. Let's talk through some things about who God is and and what he's up to and, and what he's doing. And there's some places, friends, in this culture you just don't need to go. And there's some people that you don't need to entertain a conversation with because they're nothing more than tools in the hands of the adversary. You need to have ministry in 3D. That ministry will mean that you value dedication, determination, devotion. And all of it will be focused intently upon God. What I'm trying to simply tell you is this. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith. In God. My faith is found a resting place. It's not in device nor creed. It's in the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead that I need no other argument and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died 
for me. Friends, be focused on the one who favors you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we give you this invitation. If there's someone here who does not know you personally as Lord and Savior, I pray that today they will respond in faith. They'll come forward at the invitation. They will take one of the pastors by the hand. And they will confess their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, for others who are here that are believers, but perhaps struggling, oh, perhaps they're confused, maybe have a burden. Lord, help us to lay our burdens at the altar and help us just to be dedicated to you, determined to follow you, and devoted to you in all things. Help us to know the value of ministry in 3D. Lord, we give you this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.